You are listening to Think Theory Radio. 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 Wait, 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 wait. You just didn't want me to play it? So I can do it right now. Can you do it? Can you do it live? I can do it live. Let's do it live. Here All right, we go. wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on. Oh, we're just... just okay. Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. So forget any ideas you've got about lost cities, exotic travel, and digging up the world. We do not follow maps to buried treasure, and X never, ever marks the spot. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Nothing shocks me. Scientist. I'm joking. I'm not. Oh, you want? You're not me, playing oh, it again. You want, you want me to play it again? Play the whole How intro over again. You are listening to Think Theory Radio. Radio. <laughs> Radio. 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 For those that aren't confused, <laughs> this is Think Theory Radio, and I'm your host, Damien Purdue, your guide on this archaeological ride of prehistoric delights. And I'm joined by Polly the Caveman C. Yo, yo, yo. Booga, booga, booga. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had to do a little, uh, <laughs> little rewind. I forgot that I do the archaeology first. Yeah, it's different than the weird science. Yeah. It's all right. It all works together. We've done it enough times. People mm-hmm. have heard it enough. They, mm-hmm. they, they understand. The true listeners, the true fans know What's going on? It's like awesome Even archaeology <laughs> 25 or something. Something like that. In, in some form or another. Because I didn't have a title for it early on. And I used to just do like archaeology shows until I came up with the, the awesome title to it. 13. 13. Right. Although I think, like I said, I think it is about 20. It's just we didn't have that. <laughs> the, the awesome. The specific. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have the lead in. With the, the Indiana Jones and, and the Warriors clip. Do you know how many weird sciences you have? What, 30? 40. 43. Nice. Yeah. It's creeping up there. So for those of you playing at home, this is uh, the, the archaeology edition of Think Theory Radio. We do it every once in a while. It's actually been, uh, we were talking about before the show, almost two months since we did it. The last one we did was the uh, 2023 archaeological recap right at the end of the year. So this is the first awesome archaeology of 2024. And already there's been amazing discoveries in the fields of archaeology, anthropology, and paleontology. Although I really, I don't have any paleontological stuff. This is mostly all just anthropology and archaeology. Start off with our friends, the Neanderthals and humans. It's, it's a mix Okay. Because we are mixed. You know, a lot of us have Neanderthal DNA. Because now we know that they were interbreeding and mm-hmm. parting together. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been a recent stone tool discovery that actually challenges the entire theory of human evolution. Of course, that's always, that, that's always the headline, you know. <laughs> gotta, gotta bring people in. Challenges the entire of human evolution rewritten. <laughs> well, this was a study led by the Nagoya University Museum of Japan, and it uh, challenges the prevailing view of the swift cultural and technological revolution that enabled modern humans to surpass their Neanderthal friends and other archaic human species. And uh, it ha- has to do with how they. They're, uh, they call them the Levaloi methods, which is a technique involving the crafting of tools by striking stones with a hammer-like tool. It's hammer time. <laughs> and this era between uh, 50,000 and 12,000 years ago is the Upper Paleolithic era, 
which witnessed the extensive geographic expansion of modern humans and the extinction of all other human species. Because we didn't want none of them around. <laughs> Killed them all off. No, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so here we go. The traditional academic stance is that the uh, transition was a sudden shift driven by revolutionary cultural advancements, including speculated neural mutation in Homo sapiens that boosted cognitive i.e., they taking mushrooms. Kishin, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh, the stoned ape hypothesis. That's right. <laughs> and uh, but the uh, Nagoya University team research paints a different picture. They analyzed the efficiency of stone tools across a fifty thousand year timeline that covered six cultural phases from the late Middle Paleolithic through the Upper Paleolithic to the Epi Paleolithic. <laughs> Their analysis found that the significant leap in uh, tool-making productivity did not occur at the onset of Homo sapiens dispersal in Eurasia. Instead, it took place later alongside the development of bladelet technology in the early Upper Paleolithic era. Bladelet? Bladelet. Like little, you know, like little knives. Oh, that's what I thought, but I'd never heard of that term. That's a cool term. Bladelet. Bladelet. So cute. Little blade. <laughs> little, little, little blade. Little paleolithic bladelets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the discovery indicates that the cultural evolution from the middle to upper was not marked by a single abrupt evolution, but was a complex, multi staged process. And Professor Siji Korawaki, the lead researcher, said In terms of cutting edge productivity, Homo sapiens did not start to spread to Eurasia after a quick revolution in stone tool technology but rather the innovation in the cutting-edge productivity occurred later in tandem with the miniaturization of stone tools like bladelets. And I think, when I was reading this article, and this is just me jumping to conclusions, but the term cutting-edge comes from this these early stone tool makers. Okay. So we use that term as something new, like it's cutting-edge. Yeah. It was actually from the original Homo sapiens when they were making cutting edges. Okay. Bladelets and stuff. Okay. Which I thought was kind of interesting that we use that as something, you know, for technological advancement, but it goes back to the early, the very early days. And tying into this, I was actually reading another article with uh, a uh, paleontologist who wrote a book on the Neanderthals called the Naked Neanderthals. His name is Ludovic. Slimak, and he was talking about how that the mating between now that we know that like Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were mating and parting together and doing whatever, yeah, kind of weird <laughs> prehistoric origins. I don't, don't want to know what they're up to. <laughs> Some weird, crazy stuff. But that even though we do have Neanderthal DNA, it seems that the actual like mating together. Were, was kind of a product of failed alliances, or at least that's his theory, and that it actually didn't work. And his reasoning is because when they go back and they look at the DNA from Homo sapiens from forty to 50,000 years ago, that they had De- Neanderthal DNA, but the Neanderthals from back then, they've never found a Neanderthal with human DNA. Okay. So, you know, basically like when they were meeting up in these tribes and they were you know, I hate to say it, but they're kind of like swapping women and you take my sister, I take yours or whatever. The human women couldn't either couldn't bear Neanderthal children or only were like maybe birthing male that were sterile. Okay. And the Neanderthal women could birth human kids. And that's where we got our human, our, our Neanderthal DNA from. Okay. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. There's that's and maybe that has to do something to do with why the Neanderthals died off as well. I don't really know, but I mean no one no one really knows. The other interesting thing in the article was saying how the Neanderthals were actually more creative than the Homo sapiens at the time. And this is based on tools they found in like the flints and the arrowheads and stuff were more unique than the Homo sapiens. So the Homo sapiens were more efficient 
And they, and this is he's talking about they have so many artifacts and materials from back then, like tens of thousands. They have so many Neanderthal materials that they can't even analyze them all. And the same thing with Homo sapiens. So the, but all the Homo sapien tools and arrowheads are pretty much all the same. So it was like, you know, the Homo sapiens were more efficient. They figured out a way to do it and they just stuck with it. And they all did the same. Where Neanderthals would find, you know, a, a piece of opal or a piece of, you know, whatever other rock. And they would design the arrowheads and, and, and bladelets according to the kind of the structure and color of the rock. So they were a little more artistic, which I thought was also kind of interesting that the Neanderthals were like more, you know, had a kind of a more of a artistic sculpture, sculptor kind of kind of mind. Yeah. Where the Homo sapiens were like, nope, we got to do it this way. This is more efficient, which makes sense when you think about how humans are, you know, mass production and everything. It's always kind of a, you know, somebody invents a new thing, a new cutting edge technology and everyone imitates it. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Kind of does Copy the same can. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought those are kind of little interesting things between uh, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And then uh, <laughs> I found one that's kind of a, uh, it's like Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, but yeah. in real life. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Scandinavia's first farmers slaughtered the hunter-gatherer population. Why? <laughs> Because they, you know, they didn't like the uh, the hunter-gatherers. <laughs> it says, uh, following the arrival of the first farmers in Scandinavia around 6,000 years ago, the hunter-gatherer population was wiped out within a few generations, according to a new study from Lund University in Sweden. It's probably like, uh, they're bad for the crops. <laughs> <clears throat> they didn't like their, their, you know, nomadic ways, man. They, they wouldn't didn't settle down. A, you know, cat to mouse. What would like what would guard your fields from humans? Your, yourself, I guess. You know yeah, the kids. The kids, put the kids out there. <laughs> Go fight that man. Uh, the results, which are contrary to prevailing opinion, are based on DNA analysis of skeletons and teeth found in what is now Denmark. But I thought it's interesting because it kind of parallels the the Cain and Abel. You know, one was a farmer, one was a uh, wow, well, I don't a know. Hunter, right? Really? Okay, it? maybe. Yeah, Google it. No, and one killed the really? other. One. Well, yes, I know that. But really, <laughs> what Cain and Abel's professions? Because <laughs> I think that's what the metaphor of that story was. Uh, you know, I, I believe that there is a lot of kind of historical. Cain, the firstborn, was a farmer. His brother Abel was a shepherd. Okay, so it's a little different, but similar. Farmer killed the shepherd, right? The king killed Abel, right? Wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Because he didn't like that shepherding way. <laughs> okay. See? That was why. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's more to the story than that. I'm not a, you know, <laughs> theology major. But uh, <laughs> I have read ideas, though, that like it's, you know, this kind of metaphor of human expansion and civilization, right? From mm -hmm. going from, you know, the, uh, the hunter-gatherer shepherds into the farming agricultural way, which is the time period of when, you know, the Bible and all these stories were written was during, you know, the first city-states and all that stuff. So that's how I take it. It's like metaphorical stories. Okay. Same thing, that's, I, you know, and I know I'm going a little off track, but not really because we're talking about Neanderthals and all that stuff is the Garden of Eden story, I feel like, is a similar kind of uh, metaphorical where you had humans that lived within nature and within this garden, right? And they weren't, uh, they didn't have city-states, they weren't farming, they weren't doing any of that. But as soon as, you know, they bit from the, the you know, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and learned about other things, other, you know, outside the garden, they got kicked out of the garden, but in, there's, if you read more in it, it talks about, there are references, which is, there's a lot of controversy to it because there's references to like other people being outside of the garden. Yeah. Which is, well, if Adam and Eve were the first people, then how were there other people outside of the garden? See, I think, I, I think of that as, uh, it's, it's like the brainiac in there, you know, you ate from the tree of knowledge. So yeah. It's like the annoying little like, well, actually, uh, if we do this, <laughs> you know, like, you, know, kick you gotta like, go, man. 
I gave you all this nice, <laughs> yeah, right, you know, yeah. free fruit and trees. I bring and, you into my garden. I yep. give you everything. That was the other thing. It's like he got brought into the garden. So where was he brought in from? And if you look at the timetable when this stuff was written, there was already city states and everything happening. You know, it would only make sense I, as far as uh, I, this is an ar- archaeology show. We're going to talk about archaeology. <laughs> well, I'm, paral- I'm paralleling them. Okay. You know, I don't want to get philosophical here because <laughs> I think the ancients knew more about their past at that time period. And they were just writing these kind of uh, what they could allegories yeah. to to well, what, what they gets, knew like, about their lost past. in translation or how do you oh, tell yeah. the story. It's all, how many it's how much of it and... was uh, word of mouth before it was put down True. on you mm-hmm. know, tablet <laughs> on tablet <laughs> in cuneiform. Or whatever. <laughs> That's true. I have no idea. Stone tablets. <laughs> I know this is way. <laughs> There's paper by this point. I know that. No, I don't, they was uh, papyrus at this point. No, that was later. Oh, that was Egyptians. Really? Yeah, the original stuff was all like written on the, slabs. No, the cuneiform and Sanskrit. Yeah. yeah. No, it was the, all before the Mesopotamia was before. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So that yeah no you were right you were right okay. in the beginning it was yeah. stone slabs yeah. that's why Moses had the big tablets you yeah. know. I give you these 15, yeah. 10 commandments. <laughs> I, I could never get that scene out of my head whenever I think of Moses and the, and the commandments. Yes. He just had brilliant. these like yeah. stacks of stones. <laughs> it just drops. And just, right. Those are heavy, man. Trying yeah. to carry them back to the village and show everybody. <laughs> Didn't give uh, Moses like a, a nice cart, you know, yeah. a dolly to bring them down with. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about hidden cities found, uh, very rare Roman artifacts, and was an Egyptian sun king actually also the Chinese scorpion king? That and much more. Think there will be radio right after this. To Think Theory Radio. Today we're doing awesome archaeology and kind of uh, before I get into the, the the lost hidden cities and strange artifacts found. I'm going to stick with the the old hunter gatherer, ye old hunter gatherer. And there's a new isotopic analysis. That shows that people living in the Andes 9,000 years ago actually might redefine our understanding of hunter-gatherers. And now that indicates that they were not hunter-gatherers, as previously believed, but instead would be categorized as gatherer-hunters. Okay, why? What makes the difference? Because there are more gatherers than hunters? Well, hunter-gatherer would imply that diet consists primarily of hunted meat. Yeah. Supplemented by a diet of gathered plants, whereas these early Peruvians existed on a diet that was 80% plant-based. So they're mostly vegetarian, which I always love hearing because you always hear like these, you know, kind of like keto diet bros and like oh you know well the early humans they only ate meat that's why we have the teeth like that yeah it's no, like, well right. no actually a lot of early humans were vegetarian i'm sure they ate a lot of things before they figured out that they had to kill animals <laughs> i mean you would think the plants would be kind of the first thing you would start to eat right probably I mean, animals about, were a lot bigger than just about anything right? <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> the rocks <laughs> were digested for <laughs> no no it's good it's good no yeah. trust me i'm not gonna yeah, eat like, sand nah. <laughs> I'm good. I got this carrot. I'm okay. I brought a veggie tray. <laughs> well, yeah, they found uh, these uh, studying these hunter gatherers actually lived over twelve thousand feet above sea level. And to make this determination, the uh, University of Wyoming assistant professor of archaeology Randy Haas who led this research. Joined up with researchers from Penn State, University of California, University of uh, uh, Binghamton University, and University of Arizona, and the National Register of Peruvian Archaeologists. Together, they analyzed human remains from the Willamaya Paja and Soro Micaya burial sites in Peru. 
and they have found ample evidence at these sites these people did not hunt big game for food. And the isotopic analysis of the remains combined with st- statistical modeling revealed the surprisingly high concentration of plant matter in their diets. Are a combination of isotope chemistry, paleo, ethno, botanical, and zooarchaeological methods offers the clearest and most accurate picture of early Andean diets to date, says Haas. These findings update our understanding of earliest forager economies and the pathway to agricultural economies in the Andean highlands. And uh, more analysis shows archaeologists elsewhere also got it wrong in uh, other areas that there was many more plant eaters than once was thought. All right, moving on from the hunter-gatherer eras, but sticking down in South America, which this is one of my favorites. I always love when we find these ancient lost cities, especially in areas that, oh, no, they never, you know, they weren't complex. They weren't advanced enough to build these, but now we know. And the world's largest rainforest They have found a prehistoric metropolis from 2,500 years ago. And this is in the Upano Valley in Ecuador. And using LIDAR technology, which we've talked about on the show, which is the uh, Stanford Light Detection and Ranging, scan an ancient network of cities extending across 115 square miles in the Amazon, built around 500 B.C. and occupied for hundreds of years until the population began to migrate away between 300 and 600 C.E. The upper Amazon site's immense scale places it in the league comparable with Mayan urban systems and other such large civilizations. And you can go online and look up these uh, LiDAR images. It's pretty cool because you can see all these different buildings. It would look to be probably temples and roads that extend out. And it's huge. And you can see the kind of uh, the ancient riverbeds and all these different complexes and rectangular platforms. So it's pretty interesting that deep within the Amazon, there was huge cities Maybe the uh, the lost city of El Dorado. And there is another city that uh, has revealed some secrets. That I did have somewhere. And this was in Saudi Arabia. Archaeologists unearthed 25,000 finds in a historic city, including 11,000 bones. Archaeologists have unearthed these remains in the historic center of Jeddah, which is the second largest city in Saudi Arabia. The remains include more than 11,400 fragments of pottery, almost 11,400 animal bones, and roughly 1,700 shells, as well as building materials and artifacts made from glass and metal, the Jeddah Historic District Program announced. The finds are the result of an archaeological project that began exploring the city's historic district known as Al-Balad in 2020. These objects allow us to reconstruct the daily life of ancient Jeddah. For example, uh, oh, that was said by Lawrence Hapiat, director of the Department of Antiquities. For example, fragments of pottery can teach us about the far-reaching trade network of the ancient caliphates. Meanwhile, the meticulous study of animal bones and plant remains found during archaeological excavations so our researchers to reconstruct not only the diet of the ancestors of modern-day Jeddah, but also the environmental and climatic conditions of the past. He added, the materials uncovered in the area constitute a valuable addition to the field of archaeology in Saudi Arabia. And I think as Saudi Arabia becomes a little more open to the world, we are starting to find more and more interesting uh, archaeological discoveries there. I know there's the one with the uh, carved camels in the right, like these really detailed carved camels that are older than the pyramids. Wow. 
And there's even, they found uh, examples of imported Chinese ceramic fragments in these archaeological excavations. Which is another thing I love. They'll find more and more how interconnected the ancient world was, you know. And now, what about our buddy Alexander the Great? What about him? (laughs) Well, they found, they think they know where his dad was buried. (laughs) Uh, You know, what's wild is that Alexander the Great only lived to be 32. Wow. He got a lot done. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a lot older than that. I've not accomplished that. (laughs) Nowhere near as big of an empire. Right. Um, yeah, he was, uh, you know, pretty, uh, de- depending on which side of the, you know, of the battle you were on, <laughs> if you think he's great or pure evil, but they, um, they believe now, so his dad, Philip II was actually a pretty big ruler, a huge King that doesn't get talked about that much, but he actually, his rule gave rise to Ma- uh, to Macedonia, and it's impressive army that eventually Alexander the Great stomped around the world. Or that part of the world, anyway. Yeah. Um, they always, the archaeologists have known that Philip II's final resting place was in a tomb located in Agay, A-I-G-A-I, Agea, Agea, I don't know, but it's uh, called, now it's called uh, Virginia, Greece. But they couldn't con- determine which tomb contained his remains. Now, a new study from international team of archaeologists confirms the location of Philip's final resting place using both scientific data and anthropological sources. And they also have found uh, within these same tombs, they've confirmed the remains of Alexander the Great's half-brother, Alexander the Not-So-Great. The, the okay. <laughs> Alexander the okay. <laughs> And uh, and his son, which I thought was kind of strange. It's like Alexander the Great's not buried there, but it's Alexander the Great's half-brother, Alexander the Great's son, and his dad are buried there. Hmm. It sounds mysterious. Right? Um, and his another interesting thing is his dad, Philip II, uh, also buried there was his wife, Cleopatra. But not that Cleopatra. It's a different Cleopatra. Okay. Common name. Which is interesting, too, because Alexander, I think Alexander had relations with the Cleopatra that we know. I wonder if there was some weird kind of like Oedipus thing. Right? Didn't he? I I believe he did. I know Mark Anthony did, but I thought Alexander. I could be mixing mixing up my historical... uh, (laughs) Historical rulers. Now that I'm going to look up. That one you should look up. Uh, they found them and their infant son, who were both killed after Philip II's assassination. I was trying to actually find... I thought it did have the name of uh, his half-brother, but I don't see it in here now. Oh, no, here it is. His Oh, so his brother was a King Arhideus. So his king, his brother became a king? Never heard of him, but... Did you find anything on that? She's the full sibling. Cleopatra's the sibling of Alexander the Great. Ah. Yeah, sister. Brother, sister. What? Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) I'm stumped. (laughs) Is that true? Is that... I know there was some tie, but I didn't realize half full yeah. sister though. Yeah, no, because she was half Egyptian or like half Greek. I know she was half Greek and half, but I, I thought it was. Yeah. Um, I thought her dad was. Uh, it wasn't King Philip though. Yep. Hmm. Philip the second. I thought it was uh, uh, Ptolemy. Man, really, we're doing this today? <laughs> well, I'll move on while you look at that. Uh, and sticking with somewhat close to that is the Roman era thing. <laughs> this artifact is one of the. It's one of my favorite 
artifacts, though. It's a dodecahedron, which they have found all over the place. They've found hundreds of these things. And they're, it's a 12-sided metal object that it's hollow in the center. And each side has this like in, um, open circles with engraved rings around them. And then little spheres attached to each corner of the object. But no one knows what they were used for. They believe it could have been religious or ritual. Some people think it was some kind of dice game. But they remind me of some kind of like if this was a if this was like a fictional movie, you know, that this object would be something that they find. And if they turned it the right way or pressed the right sphere, it would start to like glow and shoot lasers out of the holes. Right. That's what it looks like. Or like, you know, the, the Hellraiser box kind of thing. Well, anyway, they found a new one. Well, it's old, but they, <laughs> they recently found one in uh, Britain. Um, it's after a geophysical survey the team dug four trenches and started their two week excavation. They unearthed lots of Roman pottery dating from the second to fourth century. Some animal teeth and bone, some small metal finds from the Roman period. And then they found this Gallo-Roman dodecahedron, which is made from a copper alloy. And they're usually uh, the size about about of an adult human fist. The dodecahedron found in Lincolnshire is about three inches tall and 3.4 inches wide, weighs about half a pound. Archaeologists say that the find marks the 33rd dodecahedron found either whole or in parts in Roman Britain, but it's the first found in the Midlands region. And the 17-year-old artifact is in pristine condition. And they say that this, the dodecahedron is one of archaeology's great enigmas. There are no known descriptions of dodecahedra in Roman literature, and therefore their purpose remains extremely unclear. That's why it's a mystery. All right, you want your uh, your Macedonian uh, history here? Your Greek well, first, history. you know okay. what? First, let's take the phone call because I wonder if Brian knows. Okay, I trust Brian good. more than you. Brian, what's going on? Oh, good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Good. How are good. you doing? Uh, I have uh, uh, just a question. Uh, uh, you uh, you speak of uh, ancient uh, civilizations. Uh, do you, uh, as uh, some do, uh, put any uh, stock uh, in the idea that uh, extraterrestrials may have visited at some point in time? Ooh, dun, 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 dun. It's just a question. Ooh, I, a don't know, I know. <laughs> What's actually, well, 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 Damien, what do you think about that one? <laughs> I, I don't, Brian. But, but so Paul does yeah, not. Does he not. firmly does not believe in it. Yeah. I have an op- more of an open mind. And I could possibly believe it. Now, I do think that there I, I feel like the the trend of it, like with ancient aliens and all these shows kind like of and that. Yeah, I, I, I feel like a lot of this kind of obscures things. And also at times can, can, to me can be a little I, I don't know if racist is the right word, but because I always feel like it's always, you know, they're always targeting kind of like black and brown cultures. So like, oh, they couldn't have built those pyramids, you know, where you never hear them saying, well, the Romans didn't build the Colosseum. You know, the aliens did or, you know, the Greeks didn't build these, you know, the temples, the aliens did. It's always the, you know, the Egyptians, or the South Americans or the Mayans. Uh, but there are. Well, I, I, uh, I, I take your your point there. However, I wouldn't uh, uh, say necessarily uh, that uh, uh, I I don't know about right. UFOs, but uh, extraterrestrials. However, uh, Star Trek, uh, very interesting show. A lot of them, and could hardly be named racist. True. Uh, and uh, uh, they deal a lot with that kind of thing. I was going to ask you a question. Did you ever hear of a man named Tesler? No. What? Who, okay. Tesler? I know Tesler. Te- no, no, Tesler? no. No? Okay. I know I Tesla. Pardon? Tesla? Nikola Tesla? Yeah. Uh, can you enlighten a bit on him? Oh, Nikola Tesla, that's, he's one of my favorite inventors and engineers. I actually went to the uh, Tesla Museum in Belgrade, Serbia, 
And uh, I actually got what, to... No, go what ahead. did he invent? Well, he invented wireless technology, pretty much. Um, there's a unit, even a unit of measurement, the Tesla, which is a, a uh, how they measure certain uh, electrical activity. And he invented the remote control. And... Oh. Go ahead. Oh, I was just listening to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, it was really interesting at the, at the museum because they had a lot of his original inventions and actually got to uh, be part of the turn. They have one of the original Tesla coils, which they have. They have a Tesla coil here at the Museum of Science and Industry, and it uh, looks like a Frankenstein machine. You know, you turn it on, and the, you, it's a big copper ball on top, and you got the coil around it, and... You know, electricity starts to fly off. And when you turn it on, if you have certain elect- electrical equipment in the area, it'll activate it. So what they did was they gave us all fluorescent light bulbs. And we stood about, I don't know, five to ten feet away from the machine. They turned the machine on, and within seconds, all the light bulbs lit up without touching anything. Oh, fascinating. Have you ever been uh, to, either of you ever been to see the pyramids in Egypt? I have not. It's on my list. I've been been to, like, the Mayan pyramids and the ones, other ones in Mexico and some... some... Could you enlighten on the Mayan pyramids that you saw? Oh, yeah, I've been to several. I was in the, uh, went to Chichen Itza, which is the main one that you usually see, like, in the commercials, where it has the... The the really intricate temple they always show that has a it was built in an alignment uh, so you see like in the certain equinoxes you see a snake descending down the side in a shadow and uh, went to Koba which is kind of a more unexcavated area and uh, Ushmal Ushmal is a very underrated one which I recommend if if anyone's ever in the Yucatan if you're going to go to Chichen Itza you should definitely go to Ushmal. Because it's 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 either just as beautiful or even maybe even more beautiful than Chichen Itza, and I actually you know like I, I think I've told the story in the air, but just really quickly, I got the chance to run around in the pyramids unattended one time because me and my friend were there, and we got there kind of late, so we weren't he didn't he's never been there and we didn't get to see much and the security starts kicking everybody out and these mayans because the mayans still live there they're like they live in the jungle they're allowed to go go in and out of the of the temple areas and they sell their you know blankets and ever you know things that they create pottery and stuff and they told us hey just hide behind the temple and when security leaves they don't come back and you guys can just hang out in here so so we did that uh, it, uh, they had uh, uh, unbelievable uh, astronomical uh, technology, did they not? Oh, amazing. Actually, they have at Chichen Itza, there is a uh, one of the world's first star observatories. And it looks like the planetarium. Like it has the round dome. It has a slot in the in the top of it that aligns with different, uh, you know, star uh constellations and at different times of the year and the way the sun goes in and creates light on different pathways. Uh, I mean, they were the ones that they had the closest calendar to what we have now. I mean, they were at, I think their calendar went to like 364.5 days. Uh, they were, and how long ago did they come up with that? Do you know? Uh, uh, it was that? about 2000 years ago. Wow. Yeah. And you actually saw that. Oh you yeah. Actually saw well, that's good for you. That's something I'll never see, and uh, uh, it's fascinating to hear about it. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite. I could talk about the Mayans all day. <laughs> all day. <laughs> well, uh, today's my uh, birthday, and uh, so I'm enjoying listening to your show all on right. my birthday. Happy, well, happy birthday, Brian. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I, I try to check in on your show uh, every week, and I have for probably a couple years now. Yeah, we know. We appreciate every time you call in. Well, th- well thank you both very much, and uh, I'll keep listening. All right. Thank All you, right, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Have Take a great birthday. Have a great birthday. That's awesome. It's his birthday. That's yeah. awesome. And he called into our show. See? Yeah. Respect right there. Yeah. All right, we got to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we have more archaeological delights and your phone calls right after this on Think Theory Radio.
to Think Theory Radio. Today we're talking about awesome archaeology. And before I get to this uh, story about uh, the Yellow Emperor of China and the Scorpion King of Egypt, we're going to take a phone call. we got Andy and Evanson. What's going on, Andy? Hey, good evening. Um, quick question for you. Have you, I know that you've occasionally do, done something remote, like I did come out and see you guys at that bar on, or a brewery on Northwest Oh, yeah, Island. Illuminated Brewery, yeah. Our favorite brewery in town. There you go. Uh, but and we appreciate you doing coming. any. Absolutely. And the beer was good. Yeah. <laughs> um, any any thoughts of doing any kind of remote shows at like the Field Museum or the Oriental Institute or, mm. or Northwestern? You know, I haven't thought about that, but that is a that is a really good idea. You did go to that haunted. I did. Place, yeah. Though. The other. Yeah. yeah. The only other remote I did was at the um, quote unquote haunted castle on the south side it's in um in beverly it's like a it looks like an irish castle it was actually built by this irishman who moved here 100 years ago and he kind of wanted to replicate an irish castle and uh okay yeah and we did uh with this uh a uh, paranormal investigator on a halloween it was a halloween show and it was pretty cool you know we walked around he had his equipment and stuff and but that's the only two remotes i've done um but you know it's funny I never thought about doing it in a in a museum like that that would be kind of cool. It sure would and, and also would be great to give yourself uh, more exposure. Yeah, to definitely. People who are really interested in the topics. Yeah. No, that's a good idea. I should um reach out and see what that would entail, you know, as far as okay. you know setting it up. But man, I I appreciate that uh that idea. That's great. Oh, keep up the great work. Appreciate it. No, oh, thank you. All right, bye-bye. All right, have a Thanks, good one. Andy. I'd really love to do the like a field trip show to to the Mayan pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> How are we going to connect for that? I don't know. <laughs> you did uh, with the uh, meeting of styles. You did like yes, a remote. I guess from that there. was kind yeah. of a remote. That, yeah. that actually was kind of funny because I did it inside my car. car. <laughs> yeah, on your phone, it worked. It did. Yeah. It did. We could do the same thing at the Mayan pyramids. It's just hit me on my phone. <laughs> We're gonna have to go through like WhatsApp or something, right? <laughs> We'll do like, well, now we got the, uh, you know, the uh, augmented reality, you know, the Apple Pro and all that stuff coming mm-hmm. out. We'll do some kind of, you know, augmented reality show where everyone can tune in and they're all at the pyramids <laughs> in your own home. You're like a tour guide or something. Yeah. I like these ideas. But that is cool. I should, yeah. You know, I haven't been to the uh, Oriental Institute at the um, it's at the University of Chicago. I, I always keep meaning to go, and I just haven't made time to get down there. Well, there you go. But it's one of the oldest archaeological museums in the country. I think you've got an idea for a future. I know. I'm gonna have to dig. I'm gonna have to awesome look in, dig into that. See if I know anybody over there. Can you dig it? <laughs> All right. So back to the stories. I thought this one is kind of interesting. It's a, it's a uh, I guess, like a theory based on certain things. But And I, I mixed it up earlier. I said the Egyptian Sun King and the Chinese Scorpion King. Because actually the, the ancient Egyptian Scorpion King, which was, you know, the rock. Was yes, it? <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, which one was, was Brendan Fraser and the rock? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, China's Yellow Emperor. So okay. there's a new theory that believes it's the same person. <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. We've debunked it. <laughs> In a new paper, which which is yet to be peer-reviewed, so, you know. Uh, Guang Bao Liu argues that the ruler of ancient Egypt, known as Scorpion One, was the figure recorded as the Yellow Emperor in Chinese documents. And this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a bold claim, and there's still Egyptologists are still trying to determine the true identity of, the, of King Scorpion. Um, some even dispute his existence, even with the Yellow Emperor. It's kind of uh, they don't really know if either of them are based in reality or these are myths. And the researcher bases his new theory on several strands of evidence. Firstly, it said that the Scorpion King unified Upper and Lower Egypt by defeating a king wearing a bull hat. Similarly, Chinese records state that the Yellow Emperor defeated the Yan Emperor who wore a cow-headed hat, <laughs> unifying the two tribes of Yan and Huang. It also makes sense chronologically. It said that the Scorpion King ruled ancient Egypt around 5,200 years ago, 
which loosely fits with the Chinese legend of the Yellow Emperor's 5,000 years of civilization. And uh, lastly, there's some intriguing similarities between hieroglyphics and Chinese script. The paper argues that the scorpion symbol found in the tomb of King Scorpion One is linked to the prototype of the character Huang, which means yellow. And many scorpions found in the Nile Valley are also yellow in color. So we'll see. Dun, 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 dun. Hmm. That'd be pretty interesting. Yeah. All right. What else we got here? There is a massive 2,600-year-old temple that was unearthed on a hilltop in Greece, and it's unlike any other. <laughs> it was just the headlines are always right, yeah. so like the grandiose. Yeah, uh, yeah. unlike any other change of human history, like, nothing like you've ever seen before. <laughs> uh, archaeologists found some massive ruins in Samarkand and identified a 26-year-old temple with a long-lost sanctuary of Poseidon. And a Greek and Austrian archaeology team are midway through a five-year project studying this lost ancient city of Samarkand in southwestern Greece. And early in the project, they discovered a large set of ruins they identified as the Sanctuary of Poseidon, who was the god of the sea and was a key figure in Greek mythology. Digital scan of the ruins found at Samarkand show the layout was unusual for a temple and had no exact parallel, which is why they say it's unlike any other. And I was, you know, I was going to say too earlier that, um, when Brian was asking me about the ancient alien stuff, there is, an, and I think I want to do a show on, uh, there's a concept called the Silurian hypothesis. And it's about, and it was created by two researchers who are scientists and they even say within the theory itself that it, they don't necessarily believe it to be true, but it's a way to conceptualize, to think of civilizations on other planets. And it has to do with the possibility that there could have been civilizations on Earth long before humans that just got totally wiped out or they're so buried so deep beneath that we haven't found any evidence for. So I think that there could be some kind of uh, parallel there between, you know, what ancient scriptures talk about learning from previous civilizations that we have not found or have record of. And now there was also, we're talking about kind of ancient technology and advanced uh, artistry, I guess you could say. This one is pretty cool. It's an ancient, ancient Romans had a form of nanotechnology. And they discovered this with the Lysurgis cup, the mysterious Lysurgis cup. I think, or Lycurgus. Lycurgus cup? Lycurgus or Lycurgus. It's L-Y-C-U-R-G-U-S. I think Liverpool won the Lycurgus Cup back in, sorry. <laughs> back in 18, no. yeah, 18, whatever, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's convinced the evidence that ancient Romans used nanotechnology. And it's a special type of glass. The cup is made of a special type of glass known as uh, decroic, meaning two-colored in Greek, which changes hue when held up to the light. It's opaque green, but turns to glowing translucent red when light shines through it. Uh, this cup owes its unusual properties to the use of tiny quantities of colloidal gold and silver. The rim of the cup is mounted with a silver gilt band of leaf ornament. Uh, the creators of this cups used gold nanoparticles to produce the ruby glass and silver nanoparticles for the green. Now, the thing is, is we don't know if they knew or aware of the material they were using or of the technology. You know, they, they might have known of this kind of nanotechnology but had a different word for it. And the uh, Lysurgis cup is actually depicts a story on the sides of the cup of a, uh, from Greek mythology, King Lysurgis, who appears in the sixth book of Homer's Iliad. And, of course, it has to do with some kind of uh, punishment. <laughs> the gods the gods were not happy, and they killed the king. 
<laughs> or he he attempted to kill Ambrosio as a follower of the god Dionysus. But you know, it's all just all about you know ancient Greeks and Romans are just about some kind of killing somebody or something. <laughs> but it's really cool again if you look it up, and also. Um, they achieve this by adding these little tiny particles that are 20 nanometers in diameter, which is less than one thousandth, one thousandth of a grain of table salt. And they're just coarse enough to reflect light without entirely blocking its transmission. Now, nowadays, we know this comes from a systematic shift to lower energy with the gold nanoparticles, plasma and resonance. But we don't know how they would have known that. And also we don't know how or what way they achieved how they were able to grind up the gold and silver into these nanograins. We, they don't, we don't even know how they did that or what technology they would have used to do that. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, we only have a minute left. I don't think I can do a story. Let's take one last call. We got mystery caller from the three one two. Hello, caller. Hello there. Hey, how's it going? You got? We have about a minute left in the show. Would you like to say? Happy Saturday night. Um, love that I found your show uh, just flipping through. Oh, nice. Um, just, just wondering uh, if uh, if it, it may be worth uh, doing a deep dive on things that they're finding in Portasar. Um as they're excavating civilizations that are about, what, 10, 12,000 years old right now? Are, the, uh, are you talking about in, like, the Gobekli Tepe in Turkey? Or? Yeah, the Gobekli, Te- yeah, Gobekli Tepe is the Turkish name, Portasar is the Armenian name. Ah, Portasar. Yeah, I actually have talked about it on the show before, but I will definitely talk about it again, no doubt. So, yeah, just tune in. We'll do this every Saturday, 6 to 7 p.m. And I hope you tune in when we do, when we talk about Portisar and Gobekli Tempe, because they keep finding more and more amazing discoveries there, which is another one that I was talking about earlier, paralleling, you know, biblical stories, because there's these pillars with these animals on it at Gobekli Tempe that have that that weren't in the air that aren't in the area all these different animals and it was around the same time period that could have been the story of noah's ark dun, 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 dun. Uh, i want to thank everybody for listening thanks to our callers we'll be back again next week and every saturday 6 to 7 p.m right here on wcpt h20 think theory radio